Hello, and welcome to another great message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks for joining us today. For notes and video related to this message, please visit www.parkviewchurch.org. All right, good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you. And 60 degrees in February, how about that? Like it could be a whole week of that. Hasn't happened since the 30s, 1930s, so like enjoy this. This is historic. I love it whenever in the winter it's warmer here there than where some of your friends may have gone to get away from the winter. So to, I think yesterday or today we're warmer than Southern California. So I always like stuff like that, especially when I'm here and not there. So it's good. So um, hey, I, I love this church. I love you guys. Have um, you know we've walked through some hard things this week and we'll continue too, but I just love the conversations, uh, the times of prayer we've been able to have, and just encourage you to just keep keep going before God, keep praying, keep talking to each other, keep affirming each other. So good, good. We're just trusting God for good in, in hard times. So tomorrow night, there's a prayer meeting again, like it's seven. Those have been some of the best moments where we just pray together and, and lay things before God. So you're welcome to join us. We'll be in the chapel uh, tomorrow night at seven, just to keep praying and seeking God together. So um, we've been studying an amazing book of the Bible. It's a book of Nehemiah. It's an Old Testament book. It's about a guy that lived 2,500 years ago, but there's so many just powerful and revel- relevant things that happened in his life that are just speaking to me and I think to us as a people, to us as a church. And so what I want us to do, we're going to see him do some amazing things in this chapter, but I want to make sure we get clear from the beginning that the intent of the Bible isn't for us to leave today going, wow, Nehemiah is awesome. Like, I think the intent of the whole scripture is that we would leave today saying, Jesus is awesome. Like, even the things we see in Nehemiah are just shadows of how truly astonishing and amazing Jesus is. So we're going to learn the things that this guy, Nehemiah, knew and did. We're going to learn from him. But even Nehemiah would tell us, don't don't get all pumped up about me. Just Look at who Jesus is. And so that's my prayer is that we would be a people that leave today and live this week that are just following Jesus, just doing what Jesus is calling us to do and living the life that Jesus is empowering us to live. So let me pray and we'll jump into this great chapter. So uh, Father, I pray that you would continue to speak to your people. Uh, We need you. Uh, We want you to walk with us. We can't do anything apart from you. Jesus, you warned us that apart from you, we can do nothing So I pray that this morning, even as we learn some great things from an Old Testament guy, that bottom line, um, everything we learn from Nehemiah would point us to you, our need for you, uh, the promises that you give us, the life that you give us, and that we would live uh, in your presence this week. God, that we would be different men, women, students, because we've been here now focusing on and learning from Jesus. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, just a, a quick recap. Uh, we've been in this book for about five weeks. Nehemiah was a guy who lived 2,500 years ago. He was a Jew, a follower of God, but he lived in exile. He lived in the Babylonian Empire, and he was just a guy. Like He wasn't a prophet or a priest. He was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And so you got to catch up, read chapter 1, chapter 2. But bottom line, God put a passion on his heart to do something about the city of Jerusalem. The walls were down. And so instead of Nehemiah being a guy that said, oh, it's too bad, the walls are down, 
That's a bummer. Like instead, he's like, God, what do you want me to do about this? And so God gave him a plan. God gave him an amazing answer to prayer in chapter 2. So Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem with the king's endorsement, the king's army backing him up, um, resources from the king's forest and all of this. So so God was with Nehemiah. You see that clearly. Chapter 3, he organizes all the people. There's 74 names. It's like reading a Hebrew phone book. But like all the, all the book of Nehemiah is his personal journal. So all these people meant so much to him because they bought in. They were with him. They were building the wall with him. And so you see that in chapter 3, organizing the people to build the wall. And then last week, this book is so real because uh, it is rare, like I don't know that ever happens, that if you're going to follow Jesus, if, God, if you're going to say, God, use me to do great things in this, in this hard and broken world, like you do not put on Team Jesus jersey and just stroll into the end zone. Like you don't just kind of walk in and have all the linemen knock all the opposition out of the way and your jersey's white and clean in the end zone. Like if you get in the end zone, if, if you're following Jesus, there's going to be opposition. The, the jersey's going to be grass-stained and muddy and bloody and soaked with tears. And so, like, Doug, you're bumming me out. Like, so, but I'm just, I'm being real. Like, this world um, is hard. And so we saw that in chapter 4. There was opposition after opposition after opposition that Nehemiah had to fight through and had to keep his people focused. Do you remember where he focused them? He kept them focused on the God who is great and awesome that God is our refuge, that we can, we can prevail, we can continue to work because God is with us. And so we saw all of chapter 4, Nehemiah continuing to point the people to the presence of God in spite of the opposition. And so chapter 5, you would kind of hope for a breather for Nehemiah and the people, but actually chapter 5, we see the most intense opposition that he's faced. Because what happened in chapter 4 is all the opposition was from the outside. But what's going to happen to Nehemiah in chapter 5 is the opposition is going to come from within. And so I think if the enemy can't discourage us from stuff from the outside, what he likes to do is kind of come from within the ranks. And there's, there's, a, there's a willingness in our hearts that go right along with what the enemy wants to do. And it's that every single one of us in our hearts have, have a bent toward selfishness. We tend to think about ourselves first. We put ourselves even ahead of God, but we certainly put ourselves ahead of other people. And so it's selfishness from within the ranks that destroys good teams or good companies or good families or good churches. That when, when the, the attack comes from within, that is especially lethal. And so what we're going to see is how did a godly leader like Nehemiah deal with the greatest crisis that he'd faced and that was the internal opposition. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 1. And so we're going to see a great outcry. And so chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Because so remember, this is the team of people all working together to build the wall, and now there's some disunity emerging. Verse 2, some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous, and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards 
belong to others. It's a horrific situation. And basically what you're seeing is that there are people in abject poverty. These people are just at the, at the point of distress and despair. And that's kind of a tricky paragraph to read. It's like, okay, what's going on? Like why? Bottom line is that people are hurting and there's all kinds of reasons. It's just like in our country today, there are, you could just look, and especially throughout the world, is that poverty is running rampant in many places, and there's not an easy answer. Why are people poor? Why are people suffering? There are many layers to that answer. And so you're seeing that right here in this short paragraph, that there are many situations. And, you know, I think one thing that's hard for us to maybe grasp with this concept, too, is that I would say that most of us, if there was a crisis that required you to just go for two months and, and roll up your sleeves and just work, most of us would not battle for food in that. Most of us have reserved enough means, resources, that we could do that. I mean, it would be a cost to leave a job for two months, but I think we forget that even in our world today, there's a lot of people that just kind of live day by day. Like, what they glean from that day is what they eat and live on. Like, there, a majority of people in our world don't have savings built up so that they can just take two months off and build a wall. And so if that's true in our day, I would say that was especially true in Nehemiah's day. These people that Nehemiah had rallied together had either just come from exile, so they had really nothing except what they had on their backs, or that he's rallying people from the region that were already just barely getting by. Okay, so you've got just different causes and reasons of poverty. But then what makes this especially bad is that there were some people among the ranks that had means, that had the wealth. And so it just, it was, it's mind-blowing, but instead of like using what they had to help their fellow, you know, teammates, the fellow Jews, they used their distress as a chance for them to make more money. They were exploiting the situation. I mean, that's, I mean on the surface, the poverty, the selling children is collateral. I mean, those things are horrific, but then you talk about the whole morale. How in the world are you going to keep a team of people united when you've got some people exploiting people to the depths that we see here? And so this is totally not the way God rolls. Like God, God is a generous God. When God sees us in need, he moves toward us. He's compassionate and he meets that need. God doesn't use our distress as a chance for him to shake us down and get more from us. Like God's completely the other way around. So so this is not how God's people operate. And so um, before we move on, I just want to stop. Like sometimes when you study like an Old Testament book, sometimes you can just look back and go, oh yeah, those bad people that were exploiting you know, people, that, that was bad. And just kind of leave it at that. But it's important to let God's word speak to us like even today. And to say, what are some ways that we, as, even as believers, as a church, what are some ways we may be exploiting each other, okay? And so I, I looked at a couple other sermons that other pastors, when they went that way with their churches, like what were some, what were some categories they, they suggested? And when I say these things, please, Doug's not in a bad mood today, okay? I'm not like, I'm not trying to shake you down for anything, but, but I think it's good to ask the question, like are we, are we guilty of any of this? And so here's a couple, a couple things that came to mind as I just looked at how did other pastors address their churches and these kind of things. Um, one could be the whole concept of, of volunteerism. Like in a typical organization, you'll see what's the saying, like 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And so when you look around Parkview, for example, 
Um, are, there, are there evidences of that? And so a good question to ask ourselves would be, am I exploiting the work and the labor of other people? Like, am I, uh, am I contributing? Am I serving? Am I helping? You know, just think of the people that care for our kids while we're in here, or uh, the people that park us, or the people that just a variety of ways that we are served so that we can be here. It's just good to ask, you know, am I exploiting some people in that way? Um, so let me just roll something out. Like one of the, I, I feel like the frontline responders in this movement, in this church, are the deacons and deaconesses. Like when there's a need, um, when there's a funeral, when there's people that need meals, they're there, okay? And that's, that's awesome. We're in a little season right now where we're kind of tweaking how we recruit them. We'd like it to be more of a personal appeal, not a, I think you used to get letters from people and we're just, we're just talking straight up with people. But that's one right now. We could still use some numbers in those teams. So the, the team would start in June through next May, 217, 218. But just pray about that. Like we just, again, that's like, yeah, I'll serve, I'll volunteer. Like that's probably the easiest first step. Like, okay, I'll, I'll do that. I think there's a monthly meeting. And then other than that, you get deployed on teams. And when you're needed, you're called upon. So be, be thinking about that. That's, that's a practical way you could volunteer and serve. Now here's a, another area. Again, this will go to the deep end of the pool and then we'll pull out, okay? I'm not mad at you. Let me say that again. But a second way to ask that would be in our giving. Like, uh, the same thing happens. That a lot of times in an organization, 20% of the people, you know, will, will cover 80% of, you know, the, the bills, that kind of thing. Um, in our Parkview, just end of the year statistics I was given for last year, I'm thankful for this, that we, we want to be a generous church. So a church with a $3 million budget, we had 1.6 million go out of these walls, like to, to Faith Academy, to The Spot, to 24-7, uh, to ministries around the world. And that's awesome. We want to be that church. Um, so, but when we looked at some of the numbers too, you know, some of these numbers jumped out that like 6% of the people are giving about 50% of the ministry fund budget every year. And that of our members, 21% gave nothing. And that a total of about 46% gave $100 or less. And so I look at that, and I was like, oh, man, my God, could you move in your people, like, to just understand? We'll talk a little bit more about it when we see Nehemiah's example, but the generosity is a powerful thing, and that when you get a team of people being generous, I see what's happening at Faith Academy now. Wouldn't it be awesome if we didn't have to struggle year by year and wonder, can we add a grade or not? Like, what if it was just no question? Yep, we're ready. We're ready to go. Or... If we're, you know, we've got land in North Liberty, we'd like to set up another place, draw some families out there. It's like, well, I'm not sure we can do that. Like, wouldn't it just be cool if we were generous and when God said, hey, go meet those needs, hey, go serve those folks, that we were ready to go. And so just, again, I'm not mad at you, but I'm just kind of throwing that out there, okay? So now we're coming out of the deep end. Pastor's done talking about money a little bit until a little bit at the end. Okay, and so here's a few other ways. Um, what about Christians uh, taking advantage of each other's kindnesses? So like, let's say in roommate world, ah, my roommate's a Christian, I just won't pay rent this month. They'll understand. Or I won't do the dishes this month. They'll, they'll understand. Or sometimes even in the business community, ah, he's a, he's a Christian, he'll understand. I'll just kind of put off paying him. It's like, no, we cannot exploit each other just because we're kind, because we're Christians, right? I think it's just we need to just square up and 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 be you know not exploit each other in that way here's one more i think just by the nature that we live in the united states it's really easy for us to be consumeristic 
that when you go to a church, maybe it's like, well, I like this, or I like that, or I like that song, I like that preacher, I like, you know, so the concept can be, I'm going to go there and just see if they will satisfy my needs, where I really think the call throughout the New Testament is, is you go to church not for what you're just going to get from that, but what are you going to contribute to that? Like, I love the mindset that one of the pastors challenged his church with was, what if your goal was to make that church a better place when you leave it than when you got there? And I would just say, as a believer in Christ, that should be your concept wherever you are. Like, so whatever neighborhood you live in now, as long as God has us living in this neighborhood, this, we're going to make this neighborhood a better place because God has blessed us. We want to bless our neighbors. Uh, same thing, dorm floor, uh, friendship, um, where you work. Like, I'm going to go there not with a mindset of like, what can all these people do for me? But how can I contribute to the welfare of this city, uh, this neighborhood? And so even apply this to the church. Like, how could our mindset be each week, not just I'm going to go to that church because of how they serve me, but like, man, what can I do to make sure that that place is, is, is stronger than it was when I got there so that more and more people could be blessed by that place? So I love that thinking. And I'm not, again, not mad at you. Just like this is how do we possibly exploit each other? I think those may be some ways. So how did Nehemiah respond? You guys are going to just love his leadership response here. Okay, look at verse 6. It says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was angry. Like, so I love this book because it's written in the first person. We've talked about that. It's like most of the book is a journal. So he's just telling us what happened. He's going, man, I was ticked. Like, I was mad. And I'm glad to hear that. Like, he should have been mad at what's going on, right? And so sometimes you think, oh, Christians shouldn't get mad. It's like, why not? Like, Jesus got mad when things are not going as God intends, or if God's people are being hurt. If that doesn't make you mad, I don't know, you don't, something's wrong, right? So I think you want to go avoid either ditch. You don't want to be that guy that's always mad. That's probably more you, okay? So, but you don't want to be the person that's never, like I just, are your eyes open? Do you, do you have a heart? Do you see like the things that God sees, the things that breaks God's heart? And so, but I love that he wasn't just the angry guy that went charging in with the people. Look what it says he did. He said, in verse seven, he says, I pondered them in my mind. Like he, I, it's kind of like, um, the Hebrew uh, literally kind of means like I consulted with myself. Like I had a little meeting. Okay, so I'm really angry right now, but let's just pull back for a second. And I imagine the place Nehemiah went with that was where he constantly went whenever there was opposition. He went into the presence of God. God is great. God is good. God is, uh, God is my refuge. So I think he went into that refuge and said, okay, God, look, these are your people. <laughs> this is your project. This was your idea. You broke my heart for this. So instead of Nehemiah just charging out in his own, I think he consulted with himself. Okay, God, show me how to do this. Show me to confront this. And then he moved in. He didn't go passive, but I think that little consultation with himself helped him move in well. Okay, under the greatness, the banner of God, I'm going to go with God. I'm not going to just charge ahead and do what I think makes sense. So he pondered them in his mind and then accused the nobles and officials. And I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. That word there is more than just interest. It means that you are laying a heavy and unnecessary burden on them. You are doing what is not right. Here's what's really important. Uh, Nehemiah feared, you're going to see this phrase throughout this passage. Nehemiah feared God more than he feared anything else. And the fear of God means 
Not, God doesn't want you around trembling that he's going to like squash you and like just smear you on the sidewalk. Like that's not, God wants you to be in awe of him. Like he, he is great. He is glorious. He is gracious. He is kind. He is good. To be so blown away with who God is, so in awe of God that when you fear God, all other fears are removed. In fact, there's a great quote. A guy named Oswald Chambers says, when you fear God, you will fear no one else. But when you don't fear God, you'll fear everything. And so what Nehemiah did is he, 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 he gathered with God. He consulted himself. Proverbs 16.32 says that he is slow to anger, is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So God has given us these emotions of anger or maybe sadness or maybe fear. But those are like dashboard lights for you that are telling you, get into, get into your refuge. Take this before God, and then fear God ultimately, and then let God show you how to move forward. And so that's exactly what he did. And so it says, then I called together. I called together a large meeting to deal with them. That's the end of verse 7. And then verse 8, and I said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles, and now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say bingo, he's confronted them, right? He's exposed their sin. And then verse 9, so I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? So because Nehemiah was in the refuge of his awe of God, his fear of God, he was able to move in. He didn't fear the officials. Like one thing that got risky here is what if they all said, well, forget you, Nehemiah. Like all the influential, all the rich people turning their backs on him, humanly speaking, would have shut the whole thing down. But Nehemiah could have said, oh, I don't want to offend them. You know, they're kind of the power brokers here. And that didn't stop him. He feared God. He didn't fear people. So he moved in and he told them the truth. Uh, the other thing he did out of his fear of God is that he wanted to make sure that God's standards were held up to. This wasn't just something that bothered Nehemiah. What was happening was bothering God. In fact, the best verse that would probably show that is in the book of Leviticus. Listen to how God instructed his people to treat each other when people are in distress. Look what he said. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident so he can continue to live among you. Do not take interest of any kind from him. But here's again, fear your God so that your countrymen may continue to live among you. You must not lend him money at interest or sell him food at a profit. Again, God is showing his heart that when we're in a bad place, God, again, God doesn't shake us down and get more from us. He moves toward us. God is gracious and generous. And the people who fear God will respond in the same way. People who are in awe of how God has been so good to them in hardship, how God has met their needs, that's the way you'll respond when you see people in need. So Nehemiah confronted them, and he implored them to, guys, you got to fear God. Like, look how God operates. Look how God helps us in our distress. That is how we are to help others. Did you see the other thing that was concerning Nehemiah? Is He's concerned, what are the other people going to think? Like, what are the other nations going to think? If we treat each other like that, what kind of reflection does that have on God? Nehemiah was driven by a passion for God's name to be, to be upheld and God's standards to be shown through God's 
people. So it was a big deal to him. And I think you caught this, that Nehemiah shut down the work. He brought everybody together. As urgent as it was for him to build the wall, he had to confront the selfishness that was happening among God's people. And so then Nehemiah goes on and he points to his own example. In verse 10, he says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending to the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and also the usury that you're charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. So this is a drastic step. He's saying, guys, stop it and just give back everything you've taken. Like restore what you've, what you've taken. Give it back to the folks. And even though these people would still probably be in some level of, of suffering, what this is showing is that these people are repentant. Like, we have lived selfishly. We have been greedy. We have been exploiting each other. Now we're going to fix that. We're going to do something about that. And I love how the people responded. They just, again, Nehemiah gives us many great examples of strong leadership. But I think you'll see the people also give us a good picture of how do you respond when you've been caught? When, you've, when it's been exposed to you that you've been selfish, that you've been greedy, look at how they responded. Verse 12, we will give it back, they said, and we will not demand any more from them. We will do as you say. And then Nehemiah, just kind of to make sure, he summoned the priests, and I made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe, and I said, in this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep his promise. So may such a man be shaken out and be emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they promised. So that whole shaking out the rope thing was something in that culture that this is what God's going to do to you. If you do not fulfill your oath and what you just said you're going to do, then God's going to just kind of like, we'll see you, like you're done with me. So that, that was that wake-up call. And so I think the people were already leaning in towards obedience, but here we are, like, make sure you obey, because this is what, what God is doing. So they just, they fully fulfilled their vow. And I love this. Did you see the, res, the result of it? Is that all the people said amen, and that all the people praised God. Not just the people who were being exploited, but the people who were the exploiters, that when their sin was confronted, when they were shown the, the awe of God, how God is great and good. And they were convicted of their sin. When they, when they sought repentance and when they paid back what they had taken, they also praised God. So there's a great lesson here for us. When, when, when God invites you into his team, invites you into the church, he knows you're not perfect. He, there's no qualification here like, oh, if you want to be a part of part for you, you better be perfect. Like, if that's the case, I'm long gone. Like, you've heard me say, like, we're in a room full of broken, messy people right here. I'm number one on that, okay? You can fight for who's number two. But there's not a perfect person in this room. But God and his, the Bible says, it's God and his kindness. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. That part of God's kindness to us is going to be to confront us when we are selfish, when we are exploiting each other. And then it's our job to respond like the people here did, to not defend it or deny it or to fight it. But to be honest, I, I'm selfish. I'm, I'm greedy. And, and, and then to take steps to, to fix that. But, but it's a beautiful picture here of a man that didn't fear people, but he feared God, that confronted with Scripture. And it's a beautiful picture of people who, when pointed to the awe of God, admitted their sin and made good with what they had done wrong. So let's just pause here for a second and say, so um, what are the evidences of a group of people 
uh, living in awe of God, like either us individually, our family, or this church? What are some examples? I think that personally there would be some times in our week where what we do is we just personally tell God how great he is and how good he is. That our prayer time isn't just, God, do this for me, or God, get me out of this, or God, you know, just like there are designated times where we just tell God about his greatness and his goodness, that we praise him. Um, I think there'll be times that the more you do that, the more you realize how, how big God is, how strong he is, how good he is, then you're, <laughs> we, we tend to think more of ourselves and less of God than we should. But when you start praising God, you become smaller and that's a good thing, because I think what that shows you is how much we need God, that we can't pull this off. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So I think we start getting a, a, a real clear sense of who we are. And so if you're really praising God, the next thing that happens is that you become small. And so then out of your smallness, you begin to crave God in new ways, in fresh ways. You long for his presence. Like you can't even imagine going through a day without praying to him, asking him for help. And then you begin to see and experience the greatness of God and the goodness of God. It's not you just winging it, leading a family. It's not just you winging a job. It's not just you winging your life, but it's God with you. And so you crave his presence. You crave his word. You can't wait for him to instruct you. And then you also crave other people in your life who are also walking in the fear of God that aren't afraid to say to you, you know what, I think you're being a little selfish here. You know, I think, I think your temper is like a little bit out of control. I think you need to address that. That, that we then are with a community of people that, that, that God and his kindness are bringing into our lives to point us to ways that we're living in sin. And that we, we confess that and we make good with that. And then people around us praise God. It just, it's being part of a community of broken people that are running after God together. So, so that's what, um, uh, those are evidences of people living in the awe of God. And at the end of the day, what you see then are people that walk in humility, people walk boldly, confidently, uh, and people who are united around the glory of God. And so that's, that's one, one other section here, but uh, let's see what Nehemiah did. The last f five verses here, you're going to see Nehemiah's example. Again, we're going to be amazed at his example but remember, he's, a, he's just an example of the ultimate uh, leader is Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's look what he did. So he led by example. He feared God. He knew God was great and good. And this is how he lived. So verse 14, he said, moreover, so this is kind of a summary statement. In fact, I think this is written at a later time. He's kind of writing back. He says, moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, so just to pause, for 12 years then, Nehemiah was named governor of this area. He continues to get favor from King Artaxerxes. So for 12 years, he was governor. Listen how he describes his reign. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them, in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, there's that theme again, out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. 
In spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. And there was one commentator I read that with that amount of food that was given him, again, this would have been because of his official position, King Artaxerxes would just lavish Nehemiah with all these resources. One, one scholar estimated that Nehemiah regularly fed up to 500 people with that allotment of food and wine. But again, he was an example of a leader that didn't hoard it for himself, but just constantly shared and met the needs of the people around him. And then verse 19, this is the fourth prayer that Nehemiah says in this book so far. He says this, Remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. So Nehemiah is an example to us of, okay, what does it look like if you truly believe that God is great and good? If you live with a reverence for God, with an awe for God, how does that translate into your life? I think the way you live then is that you see that you have a generous God, so then you are a generous person. Generous God, generous people. In fact, there's three things that generous people know. Um, And this is something we want to be. We want to be known for our generosity. Uh, The people that have contributed the most in the history of humanity is not those that have hoarded the most for themselves, but those who have received from God and then given their lives and given what God has given them for others. Generous people know three things. One is that God is good. That God is good. In fact, generosity uh, turns uh, everything on its head for the world watching us. Uh, The world thinks you need to accumulate as much as you can. Stuff, money, power. The more you can accumulate for yourself, the better off you are. But the generous person takes that and says, I'm going to flip that. I'm going to live the exact opposite way. And a watching world just is in awe. And I say, wait, why are you living like that? And you say, well, I found something greater than these things. I found a God who is my rock and refuge, who is great and good. So I don't have to hoard. I'll just take what he's given me, and I'll share with others. So generous people know that God is good. He will never outgive God. Uh, none of us will show up in heaven before the throne of God and say, God, you held out on me. God, you ripped me off. Like, it's going to be the exact opposite. Is God, why didn't I, why wasn't I more generous? Why did I doubt that you would be good? Why did I doubt that you would backfill whatever I would give away? So generous people know that God is good. Generous people know that God owns everything. And that's called the Christian doctrine, kind of a stewardship. It's a radical concept that you do not see in other worldviews. And the concept is this, that God owns everything. So sometimes we'll talk about my house, my job, my body, my life, my money. It's like, no. In the the biblical economy, God owns everything. And you can say, well, I worked hard for it. Well, you look at Deuteronomy 8. It says, even when we work hard, God gave you the strength. God gave you the resources. God gave you the, the connections in your life. So it's all God's. And so instead of looking at our stuff and going, well, this is my stuff, I think I'll give God a little bit. Like, it's like, no, everything I've been given is, is God's. So how much should I keep? And then how much could I be radically generous with? It's a whole different way of viewing our things. And when you look at the Gospels in particular, you're going to find the greatest joy in your life. It's not going to come from the things that you've hoarded, but it's going to come from the things that you have sacrificially given away. If that's your time, if that's your life, if that's your abilities, or if that's your stuff, those, those will be the most satisfying things in your life. And that is so radically opposed to how we're wired and the world we live with. It's completely flipped. But generous people know that God owns everything. And the last thing is that generous people know that God rewards. And I know in a church like this, I, I, again, I'm not mad at anybody, but in a church like this, there are a lot of people that know this. 
I know there are a ton of you that serve. There are a ton of you that are generous. There are many of you that give and have laid out your life for others. And so what I'm saying here that God, generous people know that God rewards. A lot of you people know that already. You've tasted that. And my prayer is that you are affirmed in that and that it even has, has created a, a hunger and a thirst for even more. Like, God, you've been so good to me as I've maybe responded with this amount of generosity. God, I'm going to trust you. Like, you're going to continue to reward. You're going to continue to be good to me. And I think it's really important, again, that we don't leave today thinking Nehemiah is amazing because actually Nehemiah is just a shadow of what Jesus has done for us. That Nehemiah is kind of a hero in this story, but Jesus is the hero of the whole story of the Bible. And I love the verse that was on the screen behind me earlier in the service, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. And that's, that, that's the mindset. Those are the people that Jesus longs to just launch into one of the least biblically-minded cities in the country, Iowa City, or wherever you live. God would just love to launch us today with the mindset that Jesus was rich, he became poor, and now because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we are rich. God is for us. Who can be against us? And so we move out of here today as people who are able and ready to be generous because God has us, because God is good, because God has met our needs. And now we can go and be those kind of people in this city. So what I want us to do is I would love for us to, um, to respond. And I want us to, I'm just praying that God would help us be a church that keeps our hands on the wall, that we are people who live generously with each other. And so I want to give you a chance just to pray and to respond to three areas. So um, a slide will come up for each of these three areas. There'll be a few things you could pray for, but I'm just giving you a chance to respond. And like we've done the last few weeks, if you are sitting next to somebody you want to pray out loud with, you're welcome to do that. Or if you'd just rather pray quietly where you are, you're totally welcome to do that too. But the first thing I thought we'd pray through is just, uh, we just praise God. So just tell God, God, you are, and then fill in your blank, but like great or holy or supreme. Like what what comes to mind? But let's do that as a people first. Let's, uh, let's praise God for, for who he is. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Parkview Church. We pray that you are blessed by God's word. For additional teaching, resources, podcasts, as well as information on who we are and our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.parkviewchurch.org.